Welcome to the Writer's Right Podcast, the show where every writer has the right to speak their mind. I'm your host, as always, Joshua Howe, and we'll be giving attention to the last thing my guest has written and the writing process. Today's guest is a writer for Bleacher Report's BR Mag, one of the best storytellers working today, and a cookie connoisseur. It's Mirren Fader. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm really good. It's like sweltering in Toronto, but I'm, I'm, I'm really good. Otherwise. I want you to know, I want you to know I had a cookie today, so this was very on brand. Okay, <laughs> so I was going to ask, do you typically have like cookies on standby when you're writing or are they just for special circumstances? Oh my gosh, I have to have them on standby because the entire process is a frustrating process. And so the places that I go for my coffee shops, like I strategically go to places that have them. So you got to have the right vibe or else it's, it's not going to work. <laughs> yeah, for sure. That's uh. That's something I'm still working on. I'm, I'm not very good at uh, holding myself back if I have something just sitting there. I'll just consume it and, yeah, then it's gone. Yeah, this is not a great habit to have. <laughs> I, I don't think people should take my advice. <laughs> yeah, um, the reason uh, you're on today, obviously, you had a big piece drop today on uh, for BR Mag course called The Rise of the Next Atentacumpo. It's amazing. Uh, probably the best thing I've read this year. It's uh, it's long form, which is my favorite type of thing to read, and uh, obviously the staple of BR Mag. And um, so, yeah, I just want to start by saying, uh, congrats! The work you put into this really paid off. It's uh, it's it's really good. Oh, that's so kind of you. I really appreciate it. To get right into it, I guess the piece opens with starting with Giannis and Alex Atentacumpo in Milwaukee, and Giannis is watching his little brother, and. Like, right away, there's already this sense of a connection between the two of them, which isn't super easy to do, just to convey. So even that, I found to be pretty impressive. But there's this nurturing, protective manner to Giannis that's, like, as you mentioned, that piece kind of like a father. And he's doing all he can to sort of prepare his brother for what lies ahead. As he, you know, kind of vaults towards, hopefully, an NBA career. And, you know, he's very intense about it. Even the quote you have about, lock that shit out. Was that connection apparent immediately, like as soon as you saw the two of them together? Yeah, I mean, the funny thing is, is that uh, I wasn't guaranteed to see Giannis. So that was the whole um, gamble of the entire thing. We had no idea if he was going to show up or not. I think Alex's coach said something like, you never know if he's going to be in Milwaukee one day and then New York at night. He's just so busy and he's doing so many things. So, you know, I went there without knowing for sure if I was going to get him. But when I saw them there together, they just had such a kinetic energy about them And I mean, Giannis calling him while they were in the same house, (laughs) like he was upstairs, which is my favorite detail. I was like, wow, okay, he's so protective. They have such a bond. And so I knew I wanted to have that in the lead. You know, leads are really hard to write, but you want to establish as much character as possible to start out with. And I thought that like I had to kind of foreshadow that. Giannis is sort of like this surrogate father. I wanted to do that as sort of like a breadcrumb to set up the tension with their dad dying later in the piece. So, yeah, that was sort of how I I went about the start of it. Yeah, so making it your opening, you mentioned, like, what, what do you think was the most vital thing about this moment in particular out of, like, I'm sure a thousand moments that you came across that were so amazing that you decided that this is it, this has to be the lead, it has to be the opener. Like, when it when it, it was happening in front of you, it was like, did you know it then, or did it take a bit to kind of decide, okay, I think this is how I'm going to start the story? 
You know, I never really know how I'm going to start a story until way late in the writing game. But for the first time in my career, like I knew it as it was happening. (laughs) And I think it it was the intensity that I was watching Giannis watch Alex with for something as stupid as just like dribbling between his legs. And I thought that it made everything just sort of clicked for me while I was talking to Giannis and, and watching him watch him because Alex's whole life was watching Giannis, right? Like Mm -hmm. he literally watched Giannis since he was a baby. So how can I flip that and show readers that like Giannis is now watching Alex? Like there's this like little breadcrumb everywhere about like seeing and eyes. And so I knew I wanted to start it through Giannis's focalization instead Mm -hmm. of Alex, because Alex, that's the traditional thing. That's all he's done. His whole life is watch, but now he is being watched. Yeah. And like to go along with that as well, it, um, you have this great visual of this moment being like a cocoon and this sort of safe place, a place of growth and maturation and trust and just like a general snugness. And Giannis is, of course, the quote that pervades the piece about it's just me and you. What did it feel like to be inside that kind of sacred space with them? I love that question because when I, so after I report, I go and write in my journal about what I just saw. And that's all I could write about was how I felt in that space. Like I felt like I was afforded some intimacy that I wasn't supposed to be there for, or I knew that other people weren't getting that type of intimacy. I was like let into their cocoon and I was just writing about it. And that's when I came up with the word cocoon. And I, I can't ever do it justice. What Giannis was telling me about me and you, but he literally was just the way he said it. It was like, it's just me. And then he had this super long pause and you, me and you. And he just repeated it. And I felt like it was me and him. I felt like I was doing something <laughs> with Giannis. You know what I mean? Like he was just, the way he talks is so prophetic. It's so fascinating. He's so sure of himself. And so I, I knew that, that scene like really, really stuck with me. Yeah. He, and he is, he's so sure of himself and it's so clear in this piece. And Alex, obviously who's somebody younger, um, is sort of grappling with that, um, throughout this story. And I'm, I'm sure still is. Um, and there's so much pressure on this kid. Like he's got three brothers in the NBA. One's the reigning MVP. And, you know, Giannis even said he thinks that Alex can, can hold his own, can be better than he currently is. Um, and I'm not, you know, Alex mentions at some point in the piece, but we're not sure, you know, how good Giannis is going to be. I'm not sure he's met his peak yet either. And this notion of hard work seems to be a trademark of the entire Attentacumpo family about never being satisfied. And Alex sort of seems to understand that pressure, and that, but at the same time doesn't want to be just like his brothers um, or just better than them. He has this amazing quote that I can't believe a lot of this stuff came from a 17-year-old talking about how, like, my end goal is to be the best version of my own self. That's such a mature quote um, from a 17-year-old, and the first one by him in the piece. Was that quality, the one of uh, maturation and the notion of somebody who's just, like, uh, grinding all the time, and that's that's just what he's been brought up in? Was that a quality that stuck out? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, work ethic is one of the through lines of the piece. But as far as the maturation, Alex is probably one of the most mature athletes, one of the most mature um, young men I've ever spoken to. And I think mm-hmm. um, a lot of people ask me, like, why do you cover high school kids so much? Like, isn't that boring? And I'm like, 
you know, no. Um, I think <laughs> the most interesting time to profile an athlete is at the beginning of their career or at the end. I think at the beginning, they, they're embarking on a quest and they don't know where it's going to lead. And I find that like setting sail period in their lives to be fruitful and interesting and fascinating because they don't know what's next. And there's the tension. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think like when a person's in the middle of their career, they haven't even really processed what's happening. It's like happening in real time. And I don't like that. Um, so I actually think, you know, people are so dismissive of high school athletes in the same way that people are dismissive of, um, young adult fiction. I love (laughs) YA. Like I literally love YA. And, um, so anyways, Alex is so mature and he thinks so much about time and maximizing it and, you know, but at the same time, he's such a boy, he's chewing a Twizzler, you know, he's, so there's this tension between like being a kid and a man. He's so mature, but he's not yet a man and he wants to be a man and he's had to grow up fast, but he's still a kid. And so I kind of wanted to introduce that tension too. Yeah. And it's, it's definitely, it's very clear that that's there throughout the whole way. It's so clear that he wants to be his own person and which is, you know, a typical, uh, common quality, I guess, amongst the younger siblings usually, but also that he understandably shares these proclivities with his brothers, and he loves being in the gym with Giannis, and Giannis loves having him there and pushing him, and his path is inevitably intertwined with his siblings. Did you kind of sense a struggle with him at all in terms of just reckoning with those two, two things of being his own man and yet following this worn path that his brothers have kind of laid out for him? I mean, I think there's a couple of tensions and that's one of the central ones. And that's why I had that line, you know, the dream is his, the dream is theirs because it's complicated. I think with, with basketball families, especially the youngest one, you always wonder whose dream is this? Is this yours? Is this theirs? And I think with him, it's, it's all of these things wrapped up in one and he, he can't, he can't reduce it to one thing. Um, in some ways, you know, he's indoctrinated. He has to do this. But at the other thing, he's like, no, I love doing this. And then other times he's like, I don't know if I can do this. I think it's just like that is what it is to be young. It's to have anxiety. It's to, you know, question yourself and your place in the world. That is literally the condition of a young person. And put that in one of the most promising basketball families in the world, that's going to magnify that anxiety times like a million. And so I want to show though that his anxiety is normal for somebody in his predicament because it's never been done before. So he's embarking on a quest that is really, really difficult and untraditional. Yeah, which is great because it makes him so relatable at the same time as he's doing something that's so unrelatable for a lot of people. And yeah, sorry, go ahead. You guys say something. Yeah, I was going to say, and that's why I chose to put those details about like the Twizzler and the PlayStation and the banana, you know, Alex is a kid like the rest of them. Like he plays video games all day, you know, like he's very much relatable. And I think once people see, saw the human side of all of his suffering, they, they also realize like, wow, like this could be somebody I'm friends with. This is like somebody I know, or like I went through this, you know, I think Alex's Mm -hmm. story has a lot of threads that can relate to people. Yeah, absolutely. One of the one of the things I just found really cool as I went through the piece, um, I, I I really like how you keep kind of because Giannis and Alex are so intertwined, you keep moving back and forth between the two of them. That it's not it's a story about Alex, but also about Giannis. Even if Alex is kind of the centerpiece in a way, and there's all these little details and things like Giannis keeping photos 
from each big change in their house that they've gone through, like reminders and memories. And um, like one of them was the court where everything started for them in Greece. That stuff's like, that's just a really cool detail. Like it goes along perfectly with the theme of never allowing for satisfaction and stuff like that. Like were those details, did you, did you see a lot of that stuff and, and just think at the time that, oh, this is like, it just, everything is fitting so well. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think, so like, like I said, I didn't know Giannis was going to be there. And then all of a sudden he shows up in the basement and I'm like, (laughs) holy shit. And then (laughs) that's when I was like, oh, okay. So I have to speak English. How? Um, No, but I think once I saw him there, um, I was like, okay, it's very important for me to get Alex's story, like Alex's view of his life. But then I need to get Giannis's view of Alex and their life. So I knew that like the structure had to be like, focalized through Giannis and then Mm -hmm. Alex and then Giannis and then Alex like that that was key for me because when I was talking to both of them it's like they're viewing the same thing with different eyes one is older and experienced and one is younger and inexperienced and you want to mark the different changes in each other's lives to show how they've grown together like Alex all those things on the walls I mean I just asked Alex I was like can you take me through every framed photo like Mm -hmm. I want to know what this is about. And it's not like, Oh, this is my all-star Jersey from blah, blah, blah. Like he would tell me that like the basics. And then I was like, okay, but what does it mean to you? Like, what do you feel when you're looking at this? Mm -hmm. Like, what do you feel when you don't see yours? What do you feel about that blank space? You know? So it's like, it's taking it a step further. It's not just like, it's not just taking in what you see, but it's asking questions about what you see and getting the why. Like I need more than what I need the why. And I think like with young people, sometimes it's like incredibly hard to get the why, but Alex is, Alex is so mature. Like you can tell, like he's thought about this before. This isn't like the first time he's thought about any of this. He goes there and he thinks about these things. So I, again, the cocoon, like I entered his space, like this was his intimate space and Mm -hmm. he let me in his life for a day. So that was really cool. Yeah. And another one of those intimate spaces was like the basement, like you mentioned, another one of those really cool, um, moments where you talk about how there's all these important jerseys that his brothers uh, have hung on the wall, different ones that have meant different things, like Giannis's, uh Greek jersey that has his brother's uh, signatures on them. And Alex is kind of just there waiting for his turn. He doesn't want to put up like a high school jersey or anything. He wants to put up an NBA jersey. And it's just another kind of symbol of the pressure on him, that space that's blank, that, you know, he he hasn't figured out exactly what it is that's going to fill that space there yet maybe both on the wall and within himself and it just kind of goes back to that that uncertainty of like yeah you know he's probably well he probably is going to have a jersey there but he doesn't know that yet and it's it's just it, I thought that was another one of those great moments I really appreciate it I think I mean I agree with everything you said about the purpose of those jerseys for him but it also motivates him because mm-hmm a part of him is really, really, really competitive. And even though sometimes you get this feeling that it's his brother's dream and not his, there are moments where you're like, no, it's his. He wants to be on that space. He needs to be on that space. He needs to be on that wall, you know? And I think that's the tension. And I was really struggling writing about that because I couldn't resolve it. And then it was the most freeing thing ever when I realized I don't need to resolve it that's not, it's not resolvable because Alex's ending is TBD. We don't Mm -hmm. know if he'll be on the wall. And so it makes sense that he's 
vacillating between certainty and uncertainty. And like, he's not going to reconcile those things. So why do I feel like I have to reconcile them in the piece? I think leaving it open and, you know, having a both and type of mentality, like really freed me as a writer to, to explore the complexity. He's very complex. They're Mm -hmm. all complex, you know, it's, and I think that's why I put so much stuff about money I think a lot of people think like, oh, you're good now. You have millions of dollars. Why are you upset? You grew up poor. No, like anyone who did not grow up with money knows that you never lose that feeling, those fears, those insecurities. Yeah, absolutely. And like those those same complexities, I mean, I think it's like some of them obviously come from, you know, some of the stuff is only stuff that can come from being a family member of an NBA player. And like things like, you know, going to Giannis's games at nighttime and traveling constantly and, um, and stuff like that. But then there's other things like, like time being such a big deal for him. The most important thing, uh, as he says, and, uh, which is a sentiment he got from his late father. And it's interesting because he's kind of caught in like basketball limbo a bit right now where he's like too good for high school, but not old enough for the pros, um, and he's advancing quickly, but maybe too quickly in some ways. And he's weighing the option of turning pro, like, like to the G League or something. And he doesn't even have a driver's license yet, like you mentioned. <laughs> and and in this strange, like, in between stage, he has to continue to play at this super high level. And then you get the Giannis quote of "You could be a kid, but play like you're a man." And Alex follows it up with "I'm a kid, but my mindset is shifted towards being a man." So that sort of typical teenage life, in a way in that in those moments it's kind of like tossed out the window and i i wonder if you sense like any kind of internal conflict about achieving this this balance and like where does he find the time to kind of find himself cuz obviously he's someone who is introspective well, I think that's another tension is like he said, we got to find time for a family vacation, you know, and I thought that was <laughs> such a <laughs> that was so adorable and yeah. also so, so earnest, you know, um, because the reality of the situation is he is in limbo, exactly as you said, but he is also living a double life as a pro. So he's going to his high school workouts, banana in hand at 8 a.m., but he's going with to all of Giannis's games. He's going to the parties. He's going to all this stuff. He's out till God knows when. Like, he's living the life as a pro. Like, and that's why I really wanted that tension of, like, not tension, but that image, that motif of seeing. Because mm-hmm. Alex is seeing what it's like to be as a pro up close. Like, I think other basketball families, it's different. Like, there's a level, there's a degree of removal. Alex is literally with Giannis all the time. And that, and that's very different. Like, you know, I covered LaMelo Ball, Lonzo. Like, they're not mm-hmm. like that. They weren't near each other in the same way that these two are, you know? So I think it's it's interesting to me to show a different side of not just Alex, but Giannis, right? Like, it's not just about the baby brother wanting to be, like, the big brother. That's the classic sports narrative. I'm sick of that. It's This is, like, big brother wanting to, like, coach up little brother. Yeah. Yeah. Their relationship is so fascinating, um, especially because it's, like, in some moments it's so, it seems so brotherly, and in other moments it's so kind of Giannis being the father figure, and in other moments it's Alex, you know, acting like, he needs to be the grown up and and taking on that role. 
another one of these small tidbits that I found to be so fascinating was one that you kind of already brought up already, but I just find it so insightful for the relationship between uh, Giannis and Alex was the phone call from upstairs. <laughs> that um, was my favorite. <laughs> it, it's funny because like it's as as much as Giannis is like pushing and helping Alex grow up, it seems like he's also trying to help him be a kid still in some ways. Well, he's a helicopter dad, if we can call it that. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I there are so many scenes that I wish I could have. Like, he was yelling at Alex for drinking lemon lime Gatorade. That's why I had that at the end. <laughs> he was like, "What do you?" He's like, "Bro, like, what are you doing? Like, put that shit down. Like, that's not a thing." And so when he, so okay, you gotta understand. Like, I don't know Greek, so I'm just sitting there with Alex in the basement, and the phone is ringing, and I'm like, "Oh my god, this kid is too cool for life. Like, who's calling him right now? Like, this is this is unbelievable." And it the call is so freaking short. I can't you know because I don't I don't know what's going on and I think like earlier in my career I would have just let it go like oh maybe he had to deal with something but I was like no like who was that he was like oh like sorry that's my brother and then I was like (laughs) isn't isn't he like here like doesn't he live here like up there and he's like yeah like he was just asking (laughs) how the interview was going and like it was really cute. Giannis was like, anything for Alex. I will talk about Alex, anything for Alex. You know, this is his first big interview, you know. So it was really cute. And he was obviously, like, worried about Alex. Like, how's Alex doing with the interview? you got to understand that I talked to Alex for four hours down there. Mm-hmm. I It was not, like, a short thing. Like, I flew to Milwaukee. We spent the entire day together. So Giannis was definitely concerned. <laughs> that's so cool that that's their relationship. On the on the a bit of the more serious side, I guess the Atentacumpos in general they don't they don't tend to I guess look at the game of basketball as something that's just for fun. I'm sure they have fun playing it, but in terms of the larger scope, they don't look at it as something that's just for fun. They believed basketball could save them from the financial situation that they came from, which was poor. Um, and you got into that, and Alex sort of learned how to prioritize things like family over everything else. And that meant that every basketball failure uh, hurt their family exponentially. Like the, in particular, the the Nassis signing with uh, I, I don't know, I'm probably pronouncing this wrong, but Marousi BC. Mm-hmm. Yeah, before that club got white for financial issues. I mean, that was one. Those uh, are just so tough to read about. And even now, Alex certainly seems to maintain this mindset. I think thanks in part to Giannis, I'm sure that basketball is not just a game to be taken lightly, but it's a future. And that's why that's why there is also a tension about like why he continues to do this. Um, you know, certainly when they began, there was this financial imperative. But, you know, as a kid, when you're growing up, you don't know any different. So you don't think like there's anything wrong with like your mom selling CDs off the side of the road. Like you just she says, we're going. It's Wednesday. That's the day we go to the market and you go. And like, that's your normal. And like, you don't like you're not framing it as like, oh, my God, like we're so poor. You're just like, oh my God, I'm with my mom all the time. I love my mom, you mm-hmm. know? And like, he felt so much love and he had so much fun with his brothers. But then they began to teach him being older, like, Hey, like we don't have money. And so that scene with the PlayStation, um, was really important to me because like that was heartbreaking. Like in every story, like you want to hit your moments. And I think like, that's one of the biggest thing that I'm working on is like, you don't want to overdo it like mm-hmm. with the emotion, mm-hmm. but when you hit your moments, you want to hit them. You yeah. know, I need people to feel a gut punch and so you have to pick them sparingly. Mm-hmm. PlayStation was one of them. And I was actually talking with my friend who helped me out with this. I was like, what do you, you know, what do you think about this? And 
he was like, Oh, PlayStation that hit me the hardest. And so, you know, with his help, I was able to see like, Oh, maybe I should repeat that later. And so I returned to it, but that's a long way of saying like, yeah, they went through some serious hardships with this. And that's why Alex is the way that he is today. That's why he says, I don't need anything. Like he, he's very much still the same boy that he was as he's trying to enter, you know, manhood. Yeah. And those gut punches, are so they I think some people maybe take them for granted how they how they seem so easy when they're reading something and they go yeah this moment got me and and they, that's kind of the way they think about it but like you have to build to those moments the tone can't be the same throughout it has to you know come at you the right way and I think I think every single one in this piece definitely got me to some point there were two which uh, I'll bring up again later, but two that I, I pretty much had tears in my eyes reading. So, and uh, the PlayStation one was definitely like uh, probably like third on that list. So you know that that uh, each 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 one of these hit me for sure. And, I mean, you're oh yeah, sorry, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead, go ahead. No, I appreciate that. I was just gonna say you're absolutely right, and uh, you have to build up to it. I think it would have been really exploitative to begin with the dad dying. I just thought like yeah. I hate sports stories that do that. Like like grief. Grief is often the mode, like the through line that a lot of sports stories go through. Mm-hmm. And I think like for me, I just decided with myself like, yeah, like at times I, I write about grief and sad things, but I can't use that as my through line. I got to be that's a crutch. I got to be better than that. And I got to know that like the person is way more comp- like their story's bigger than their worst moment. Just like we're all bigger than our worst moments. So if you're telling the story about me, I'm not going to like if you start with that because that's not all of me. That's affected me significantly, but that's not me. And mm-hmm. so I, I just try to keep that in mind and like build up and build context to these like emotional moments because like I want you to feel them and like you're not going to have the reaction that you were describing if I just hand them out every single paragraph. Like I right. literally try to set up every single line is intentional like this is here for a reason that is there for that reason mm-hmm. yeah and I, I think they were placed really well I, I actually I think the lead was a perfect type of lead where you get a that initial sense of the relationship between Alex and Giannis and it's kind of a you get you get something but you don't get obviously everything and it, it leads into everything else and I, I honestly think the stuff with his father was placed really well and now we get to that bit where he almost quit basketball and this was because his father Charles had a heart attack and died at 54 and it I mean there's moments here like Alex having seen him only four hours prior that was that are just so gut-wrenching to read about and he was a very important figure obviously Charles was in in his uh, his brother's lives and determining helping them become who they are and Alex was so still so young when this happened he's a different age than his brothers so he has to deal with it differently he has that really potent quote about in the shoes imagine you have shoes your whole life and then they're taken away from you which is just another really mature quote from a teen but in general I was kind of curious like how just how tough was this part of the interview Yeah, man, it was really, really tough. And I knew that going in, like, I knew I had to ask about this. But like, you're not going to ask that in hour one, you're not going to ask that in hour two. Um, So this was like near the fourth hour. Mm -hmm. And um, I was just like, I, we talked about like, what being a man is. And I basically said, I was like, look, like, 
I know this is really hard for you, but I just feel like to tell your story, I need to ask about your dad. I feel like he's such an important part of your story. But if you're not comfortable, I understand that. But I would, you know, love to talk with you about this in any capacity that you feel comfortable. And like, that's the thing as a reporter, like you have to have empathy, like you have to come into this empathetic, like, I feel like empathy is the most, you know, underrated skill you can have as a reporter, like there's just a sensitivity that you need to come with this. And like, you don't have to have like your own dad die to do that. Like my dad is thankfully still alive and well, like I love my dad, but you know, it's just, you don't like they don't owe you their story and Mm -hmm. you have to know that. And so you just have to respect that. And so I think like that was gut wrenching. I think there was a lot of times that I just wanted to like burst out crying and also just feeling like I was such a horrible human for asking about this. And, you know, because people like his voice was literally barely audible. Like it was very even hard to transcribe this because he was just like talking on such a, end of his rope situation. But, you know, I knew like when he says, if somebody says to you, I think about my dad a lot, you know, that's not specific enough for me. And unfortunately that means asking more questions and hurting, hurting your subject more. And there are times where you learn to pull back and you stop asking because you're interrogating and it's not right and it's not cool and it's not ethical. But Alex was really cool and open. And I think we got to a point where like he started to trust me and feel mm-hmm. comfortable. And then it kind of kept pouring out and mm-hmm. then he kind of like couldn't stop. And then I was like, Oh man, he trusts me with his story. And I think like, that is why I do this. Like that's the most important thing for me is like that connection that I have with them and like that period of time where they're open and vulnerable, like that's sacred to me. And like the reason why I go so hard with my stories is because like I feel a responsibility to tell their story, right? Like this person trusted me, opened up to me, let me into their lives. And like, I don't want to let them down. Like, I don't like, I don't have a connection to them. Like I'm a journalist, like I'm not their friend. I'm mm-hmm. not their confidant. But what I do have is a responsibility to tell it accurately and truthfully and, and do it right, you know? Yeah. Did you, I guess this is a kind of in general with most of your subjects, but do you find it difficult to achieve that trust? Like, like you're talking about how, you know, you talked about this conversation in like the fourth hour, four hour interview. Is it, oh is it like yeah. a huge... I, and I'm sure it's different with different subjects, but is it a is it a difficult process typically going in to to gain that trust? Oh man, it's like insanely difficult. Like uh, I have a friend of mine who said like reading my stories is like reading a subject's diary. Mm-hmm. Like how the frick how the frick do you do that? And I'm like, that's the best compliment you could ever receive because yeah, it takes like forever to get to the diary, and I think. That's that's one of the hardest parts about sports writing and about a lot of my stories is like I don't get the four hours like this was a really rare situation and I took advantage of it, you know, and I think like getting somebody's trust is like think of the worst moment you've ever gone through, you know, like it probably took you a really long time to tell people you care about. I know for me, like I did not tell my best friend of like 10 years, like something that happened to me until like way deep in our friendship, you know, Mm -hmm. and And so I just, I know that when I'm talking to a total stranger that like this space of intimacy that we're having is like, it's not natural and it's like, it's weird. And sometimes I feel really uncomfortable about it, but it is really hard. And I think 
the way that you do it is like, it's asking, it's asking genuine questions and it's asking questions that want to get to the heart of somebody's perspective. And I think they, they see that and understand that. So like they know when somebody's asking a question that is meant hurtfully and when somebody is asking a question to like learn more. And I always tell them at the beginning, I just want to learn more about you. Like I want us to feel like we're having a conversation. Um, because if you, if you make it feel like we're sitting down, we're having an interview, like <laughs> you're, you're going to get nothing, you yeah. know? So, and people don't talk in anecdotes. Like no. you get, you get anecdotes by when he says, I think about my dad a lot. You say, okay, what does that mean? Like what, what images come to your mind the most? When do they come? How does it feel when they pop up? Is it too hard to bear? Like what emotions come with that? You know, like, I mean, honestly, I feel like they probably all end my interviews, like feeling exhausted. Like, I don't know. I haven't done like a postscript with any of them. Like, was that terrible? I don't know. But they, you have to work hard when you're talking to me. You do like, I demand that. But I think also like there is a respect level because every time after I ask them, like, is there anything else you want to add? Like, this is your time. I just talked your ear off, say whatever you want. I'm here for it. They're just like, no, I, I really appreciate the time you took in getting my story. So I think that they're used to the opposite where people don't give a shit and they just want to like tweet something like you will never see me tweet anything about my interviews um, before. And if I if I do like mention like, oh, I just it's more like, oh, I just did a cool interview, you know, like I will never say anything beforehand. I think they respect the privacy and the secrecy of it. Yeah, I think. One of the things I've even learned over my time um, currently in journalism uh, school is just that it's really impossible to put a level of importance on being genuine in a way, just being yourself, because people can, you know, people are people. They can sniff out when someone's being fake and when they're not. And just getting those genuine conversations across and uh, that that sort of initial connection, I think, is so important because... Uh, you're tr- you're striving to write something as truthful as you can, you know. That's kind of the only way you can approach it from the beginning. So, so then we kind of reach the end of the piece here and sort of return to the crux of the thing, which is, you know, Alex is a kid, but he's not. He's tied to Giannis, but he's his own man. His bond with Giannis is incredible, rock solid. Uh, who he's going to be seems to be tied to everyone in his life: his dad, his mom, all of his brothers. Um, you bookend the piece uh, perfectly, I think, with the just you and me line again. And we kind of return to this idea of people are so insanely complex. And I think one of the best things about reading your stuff is that you seem to capture that really well. And that's extremely difficult to do, I think, um, capturing complexity of human beings. And, you know, rather than focusing on a single element of their character or, or one side of them, you don't seem to feel the need in your pieces to answer things that can't be answered, which makes them feel real. So what's it like for you to portray in words that complexity or attempt to? Man, I appreciate that so much. Like, thank you for understanding literally what I'm trying to do. <laughs> Cause it's so damn hard. Um, I think, I think it's so hard. I think I, I when I started out, um, when I started out doing this, I was not doing these types of stories. I was writing about things that I didn't want to write about. I was putting my dues in. I mean, I did obits 
Okay, not sports obits, just literal obits. Mm-hmm. I did stories about <laughs> fundraisers. I did stories about little kids playing baseball. I just felt such like such passion inside of me, like yearning and dying to tell real stories. And I just like stuck with it and stuck with it and stuck with it until like finally like Bleach Report gave me the opportunity to honestly like live my dream. And so like, I don't take this opportunity for granted. I know that I'm in a really unique p- position where I have the time, space, and flexibility to tell complex tales. And so, like, when I go report a piece, like, I tell myself, and I'm sorry for cursing, but I'm like, go report the fuck out of this. Like, yeah. go, like, go off. Like, write the fuck out of this story. And it's really, really hard because, like, you don't know these people. So, like... There's a tension between I'm telling your story, but I don't know you and I'm never going to know you. And I think it's a mistake writers make when you think just because, you know, the worst moments of, of an athlete's life or, you know, some anecdote about when they were seven years old or, you know, the worst thing that they're going through right now that, you know, them, you don't, you never will like they gave you a glimpse into their life and you should be grateful for that. But like at the end of the day, like there's a distance and separation. So I tell myself, like, can you get as close as possible to knowing them and Mm -hmm. showing them like I can't give the reader their whole life, but I can give them a snapshot of all the complexities that they're dealing with right now. And so that's that's my goal. And it's really hard. And oftentimes I feel like I'm not measuring up to that. But that's the standard. That's the goal for me definitely a worthy goal and I think an important one and uh, one that I would say you're well on your way to um, achieving uh, at least more than um, many people that I've read for sure so uh, it's going well Um, I want to turn now sort of to to the other kind of like side of this podcast which is more like focused on on the writing and in the reporting in some cases um, about pieces because I'm also fascinated in that and in this case, since we last talked uh, and I had you on the podcast, you've done a lot of pieces about younger athletes. I think the two I talked to you about before were Nate Robinson and Brandon Ingram. And since then, you've done um, yeah a lot of pieces on younger athletes. And you mentioned this kind of up top, that, that you're really enjoying these types of pieces, uh, and which I can tell, obviously, because you keep going back to them. So what is it about athletes at that age that interests you? I think they're just so, um, they're like, they're not jaded yet. And Mm -hmm. like, they don't, they're excited to talk to you. They're like, (laughs) Alex called me the BR lady. I can't, um, but like, (laughs) I just think there's an, they're like, Oh my God, like, this is so cool. Like I'm being interviewed, you know, versus like, God, how many times have I been in pro locker rooms where they're like, like I've literally had somebody say, can we get this shit over with? And Mm -hmm. you know, that's not a great start to an interview. So I think like, there's just, there's an excitement on them. And I also just think like, if I'm going to be a writer in this game for a long time, which, you know, God willing I can do, and hopefully I continue to stay employed, please. And thank you (laughs) is, um, I need to develop relationships. And I think, a lot of writers focus on relationships with PR people and handlers and the middleman. And, you know, those people are important too. I feel like I'm meeting a lot of people, but I really think these days, like the relationship with the player is the most important. And I'm very disturbed by the way that like reporters are like friends with players. That's not me. That's not, I'm not a cheerleader. I'm not your friend, but I think 
the reason why I am trying to do a lot of young stories is because I want to build a trust that can last. So just because I'm profiling you now doesn't mean I might not profile you again. Like I'm currently pursuing a part two, a part sequel on a lot of the stuff that I already did because they're at different points in their lives and they trust me because I told their story accurately, not because we're friends, we're not, Mm. but I just, they just know like she's going to tell the truth. Like she's serious. Like I can be myself around her. And so I figure if I start with them early, you never know what story it may lead to later, you know? And it's interesting to watch people grow. Like last week I was in Vegas for a different story. Well, actually that was a week before it's coming out next week. And I was interviewing the same player I've already profiled. And there was just, um, there was a intimacy there that, you know, it was just like, how are you doing? Cause the last time I saw you X, Y, Z was happening, you know? And so mm-hmm. I think like, it's cool to have that. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I think that's not something I've thought about a lot before, but it makes sense. I mean, yeah, you get a lot of, uh, players and all sports who aren't really excited to talk to the media and it just happens to be that at certain levels and age, uh, that, you know, athletes are more receptive in general to, to these sorts of things. And I think it's more in some ways, again, more genuine. So I totally kind of see where you're coming from there. What are, what are the intricacies of dealing with a young athlete rather than an established one though? I think sometimes they like when it doesn't go well, it's like, so painful it's it's just like pulling teeth (laughs) it's just like I want to play hard I want to go hard um you know Mm -hmm. I mean you you can't get sometimes you just don't get to that deeper level and you and you can't look at it like I failed you have to look at it like you know what they're also really young. They don't even really know themselves. How are they going to tell you who they are? They don't know who they are. Um, some of them just aren't introspective like Alex. Some of them live in the moment. Some of them really just want to play to get on the internet. Some of them really just want to be on Ball is Life, on Bleacher Report. Um, <laughs> so, like, you're not going to get the same connection with them as you're going to get with other people. Right. And, like, I find that frustrating sometimes. So that's why I don't just profile young people. I do a little bit of everything. Like I never want to be put in one box. You know what I mean? Like there are a lot of people like, why are you a generalist? Like, why don't you have a beat? I don't want to be, I don't want to be like everybody else. Mm -hmm. I don't want to ever be put in a box. I want to find the best, most interesting stories. I want people to say she can, she can write about anything. She can write about animals. Like I literally (laughs) want people to be like, if there's a story, I want this girl to do it. Yeah, that's, and I think that's uh, important in some ways as well, because I mean, I feel, I, I get this feeling as well, where sometimes I'll get antsy just doing the same thing over and over, and I feel like I need something else. I'm not really always sure what that something else is, but just something else. Uh, do you feel like in whatever this something else is, either whether it be a young athlete or someone else, that you have to change your approach going into whatever it may be? I mean, I have to be adaptable to whatever situation that I'm in, Mm -hmm. but I think it's about, so I think it's about finding the right story. Like that's the biggest difference for me from last year to this year. Last year, I just wanted to write about everything and you know, everything isn't always going to be interesting. Like my Aaron Donald profile was terrible. Like I look back really upset at that story. But why did I do it? Because he was like famous and about to win like defensive player of the year. 
that's not good enough. Like that's not a good enough reason to profile someone. Like I'm not proud of that. And like I cringe when I read that profile now. And so like, I think this year it's just about like being more selective and like, Mm-hmm. why do, why do you want to do this? So I think that's what it's about. It's about like narrowing your focus because like, and so, so then it gets real subjective. What's a good story to me, like a good story. It just has to be more than the sport. Like you'll notice, I don't really put stats in my stories. Like I find numbers yeah, yeah. to be irrelevant. Mm-hmm. I know that's like such a big thing nowadays, but like, yeah. that's just, that's just like irrelevant to what I do. Yeah. I mean, honestly, it's, refreshing in a lot of ways i like reading pieces where it's more more about the storytelling so okay so speaking of the storytelling like i mentioned earlier and now we've come back to this uh, i teared up twice during this um the first one was uh charles's death and its effects that whole kind of section and then the second was the ending with Giannis's speech uh, which was fascinating to me because even when i watched it which i watched live i didn't have that same emotional response uh, wow. and you know, now obviously I know a lot more things, so it makes more sense. Not only because of the events, of course, but it was partly because of how you wrote them. So, you know, like with the, uh, Giannis's speech, it was done so well because the just you and me line was pre-established. You led into that perfectly. I think the entire section on Charles's death, the details, the, four hours before, the conversation two days prior with Giannis, his dad being the one to tell him about time being valuable. And then the sort of ultimate gut punch line for me was Alex didn't know how to be Alex when talking about how his uh, his brothers had kind of, in a way, had some, because just because they're older, had some of that with their dad, helping them become who they are to sort of a higher degree. And he just didn't get that opportunity because of his age what was it like just sort of writing like this particular section? Was it, did this stuff just kind of flow out once you started into it or were you being like very particular in how you were going about uh, writing this? Well, I think, I mean, it's hard. Like everyone saw that speech on TV and I was yeah. like, fuck great. Like now, cause it was like, in my world, I'm like, I know exactly why Giannis is crying. Nobody else does, but like, I know great. Like mm-hmm. now everyone knows the story and I'm like, no, 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 that you, he gave him the preview. You can go deeper, you know? But I think, um, I think it's hard to know. Like, I think it was interesting what you were saying about, um, how you began the question about emotion. Cause I think as a writer, you have to personally tap into that emotion. So if you are not feeling emotionally connected to the text, mm-hmm. how the frick is the reader going to be emotionally, you know? Yep. So I, so I think there were moments where I was just writing it and I felt overcome by emotion. And that's when I knew like I had broken through because I think this entire story was one of struggle. Like I was not hitting it emotionally. Like I just, it wasn't coming through the page. Like I felt it in my mind. I knew all these emotional scenes and things I was going to do in my head. And then it just like, wasn't coming through on the paper. Like I just knew I wasn't hitting it. Like I just knew I was not doing what I needed to do. Like the emotion and the pain and all that was not coming through, but then that's the process. But then you, you stick with it and you just keep writing and writing and it gets less shitty. And then, then there was just like this moment where I was like, wait, I feel this. And it was the scene about the, um, he's saying to his mom, like, I don't need money. Like, don't worry about it. 
And then I thought of the PlayStation thing and that just hit me and I was overcome with emotion. So Mm. it's like really awkward when you're in a coffee shop and you start to tear up. (laughs) I mean, that was like the story I did on the suicide of James Ransom. Mm. Oh my Lord. I like bawled my eyes out throughout that process. So, but I think that's a good thing. I think you, you have to, you have to go there if you want your readers to go there too. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Like uh, I I would agree with you. I mean, that's in in my own writing. That's how I go about things. I I've always thought of myself in some ways as having words worthy and ideals when it comes to a lot of that stuff. That it's it's important to sort of write, allowing this sort of spontaneous overflow of emotion. There are other writers who prefer to distance themselves from those um, scenarios. They may have been emotional prior, and maybe they take a step back and then. They prefer to write it that way because they feel they can see it more clearly. Uh, so I guess it's a, a matter of opinion and just how you go about it. But I, I think this way, like at least in this case, I could really feel that you know that emotion was had as well by the by the writer that that it it the gut punch was there because there's this very very organic sort of lead up to it and the lines were just uh, the the perfect hit of you know, this is, this is basically how I felt. Here's the quote that got me. Here's, you know, here's all, here are all these particular details. And so I think, uh, in this case that worked out really, really well. I appreciate it. Um, so yeah, the last thing I want to kind of mention quickly before uh, we have to go here is, uh, your teases. This is something like, so at the end of each kind of section, you pretty much end most of them with one liners and they're kind of punchy and they're really good because they make you want to continue to read. And I think that's something that like I've noticed has gotten better over time. And I, I love those kind of things because I'm the kind of person who will sit still and stare at a window for like half an hour trying to think of five words. <laughs> um, so how long do they typically take you to implement? Or are they sort of, you know, coming off of the last paragraph there? They just sort of write there or maybe they're a line taken out of somewhere else. Or are they something that you do the same sort of thing as me where you're just sitting there and waiting for it to come to you and just thinking hard until it appears? Okay, this is one of my favorite questions of all time. I feel like nerd Marin is just living right now, so you are very appreciated. I think about that all the time. Oh, my God. Okay, there's there's so many things I want to say. Like, first of all, like the transitions are the hardest thing. They're one of my biggest weaknesses. I've worked my ass off to try to get better at them over the last year. There's several things that have influenced me, like Christina Tapper, former editor, forever mentor. She was the one that like really brought it to my attention that they needed to be stronger. And I always like think of her. Second, I'm obsessed with Toni Morrison and Toni Morrison does that. Like every end line is like, ooh, like, oh my God. Like, you know, she just ends stuff on like a, like every, every Toni Morrison end of a chapter is like is like a dagger three pointer, you know? And it's like, I, I aspire to do that. And third, I'm so scared that people will give up on my stories midway through. Cause they're going to be like, it's too long or, or I just like sucked and they don't want to continue. Like that's my, that is what honestly I fear the most is that people are going to stop. So I need to like entice them. I'm trying to, I have to like literally give them bait to like trick them into, you know, spending their day, like 20 minutes of their day reading my story. So I feel like if you have these transitions and you leave breadcrumbs and you don't give it all away, they're going to keep reading. But it's also because like there, there are some writers that give you all the juice right at the lead and then you get midway through and you're like, wait, 
there's like nothing here. You know, it's kind of like, um, it's kind of like when somebody serves you froyo. This is gonna be the weirdest mem- like analogy, but there's like a hole in the middle, and you're like, how? Like, <laughs> I, like, why did you not fill this? You know, that's so cheap. That's how I feel sometimes. So I'm like, I don't want to be that froyo. So I like <laughs> sounds awful. I'm such a loser. Okay, but I. I just feel like I need to hook you first, but then I have to have something in the middle. The transitions are the key to everything, to making sure that people feel sustained enough up front, but then you really have a gut, which is the most important part of the story to continue. Yeah. I mean, I love the Froyo analogy, by the way. That, oh my God. That's my favorite I analogy. <laughs> I, I can't, I can't with myself. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, I, I think I've only had like a Froyo once in my life, so maybe I need to go back to that. I've never had one you with are, a hole in it. You are not living life right. You've got to go change that. <laughs> maybe I'll go do that right now. Um, <laughs> all right. I want to thank you for coming on again, Miran. I really appreciate it. It's always awesome having you on. Is there anything you want to plug quickly before we go here? Oh, I just want to thank you for your wonderful questions. I, I really appreciate it. Um, yeah, I have a new story next week on Tuesday for Bleacher Report, and I got to spend a week with a team, so I would love uh, for people to check that out. Awesome. So you will be able to uh, read Miran's piece again. It's on the BR Mag. You can read it online. Um, it's up right now, obviously. It's called The Rise of the Next Atentacupo. And yeah, um, other than that, you can find this podcast. It's called the Writer's Write Podcast on Anchor.fm or the Anchor app if you have it. It's also now on Apple Podcasts, so you can get it there. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at Writer's Write Pod, where links to the episodes will be posted. And until then, you can follow me at Hellvolution on Twitter, and you can find my own online work at Raptors Republic. Thank you for listening.